Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Hi, everybody. We are very fortunate to have our guest, Christine Olson, with us today. Christine has maintained and thrived admirably through the suicide of her father when she was 15 years old. Christine aims to increase the awareness of the effects of suicide and to provide survivors of suicide and the community with access to support services. Christine's main focus is advocating for those left behind after the suicide of a loved one. Now, like myself, Christine is being of service to others, having lived through all of these suicide-related issues, which sadly is just too prevalent in our world today, and especially magnified since the pandemic that has affected the entire world. We're honored that Christine is sharing some of her time with us. Christine, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be here and a part of this conversation, deeply needed conversation. Great. Well, you are now on the board of advisors of Didi Hirsch's Suicide Prevention Center in Los Angeles. In addition, you've been working on your memoir called Exit Wound regarding death by suicide. And all of that piques my interest quite a bit. Can you tell us a little about everything you're currently doing? Well, um, with the COVID and everybody kind of staying indoors, it's given me an opportunity to work a lot on the book. And um, it's more than just uh, the death by suicide, but what happens after as well. Um, and. I'm very excited about it. It's, it's evolved as so many things do. Um, I was also in a terrible car accident last November that kept me down for a while, but I'm um, healing and walking and everything is back on track. Good. Good. Thank you. You bet. Um, so let, let's, let me frame our discussion and then we can drill down into specifics. Love it. What you're doing now is probably very different from your vision of your life as a teenager. So Christine, <laughs> can you share with us your story and how did you get here? 
how much time do you got? <laughs> <laughs> the floor is yours. The floor is mine. Brilliant. Well, how I got here was, you know, my father did what your upcoming book title, you know, suggests. Um, and this was in 1980. I was 15. There was zero in the way of help services. The first responders didn't have any clue as to where to direct us. So basically for 17 years, I lived believing that the stigma that I was told, which he was a ego-driven, self-centered man who tried to kill my mother and then himself um, was, you know, that's the sum of who he was. And, you know, I, I knew that wasn't true. Um, I knew he had mental health injuries. I knew he struggled for a long time. He would kind of, Tim, he would kind of go in and out of it. So I would kind of refer to it as a remission almost. And um, the last, from the time I was about 10 to 15, and he went back into one of his, um, one of his mental health episodes and it was really, really bad. Um, and I never wanted anybody to feel that alone again, like how I felt. And to learn 17 years later that there's so much more, so much more became available in that short 17 years, short, long, however you'd like to look at it. Um, that I had to, I had to, I had to see, I had to see what it was, but I was, I was kind of pushed into it. I was kind of pushed into it. <laughs> well, I, I definitely relate because one of the reasons that I've gone down this path is that I would see some friends of mine and sit and talk with them on a Friday and on Monday, I'd re receive a call asking me if I heard that Joe hung himself on Sunday. Right. And I was just with him, you know, like two days prior. And Doing a seemingly normal activity. Right. I mean, one guy was a psychiatrist himself mm -hmm. and had meds, but never took them. And it's just, it just gets frustrating after a while. And it, yes, it does. That's, that's what motivates me. I don't want, just like you said, I don't want people to go through what I went through for 41 years and uh, have to experience that when the biggest, you know, I think the biggest point is that people just have to ask for help. Right. You know, 300 million people in the world have depression, but only half of those get help. And they have to know where to go. It, it seems that the wall of stigma has gotten so high and so so thick. Like, it, it, no matter how much we break down, it's still not enough to see 
the other side showing you know that there's a whole community and help for all of us correct back yeah. there so i uh i fight stigma a lot i had to forgive stigma before i could really start fighting it so when did you know that you wanted to go into this area that I call suicide recovery? It, um, I'll, I can tell you exactly when it was. My seven-year-old son, I was putting him and his younger brother to bed that night and he, the seven-year-old asked me, how did my father die? Mm. And because up until this point, I just referred to him as my dad. He wasn't their grandfather. Um, I felt he tore up his grandfather card and I, I asked Matt, I was going to get a glass of water and could I, and that I would be right back. And I closed the door and I, I, I just started bawling. How am I going to answer this seven-year-old about what happened to his grandfather? You know, my dad, and I was so mad, like the rage started to boil over quickly. It boiled over quickly. I have to do this again, dad. You're going to make me have to go through this whole thing all over again with the two boys, my two young boys that were, I was raising into men. My husband and I were raising into men at a very uh, difficult time as the internet is just popping through. And my father was a public figure. He was an actor and it'd be, easy to look him up and get all kinds of terrible stories about him versus the truth of what happened. So I, I turned it into like a, a gun story that a gun had gone off and he was involved. And so you were to never to touch guns unless you're with a, a parent and you you come and get us. But if you see a gun, don't touch it. You back away. It, it, I wasn't lying to him, but I wasn't telling him the whole truth. Right. And I knew right then and there that I needed to get the help that I had not received in 17 years. So I went to, I opened up the phone book, the yellow pages, <laughs> and found um, a support group that was being held at the University of Judaism at the time. And I walked in and um, everyone who was there had were newly bereaved, you know, maybe four months out or two weeks out and comes to me and I introduce myself and I'm like, it's been 17 years and like 17 years, what are you doing here? You should be better now. And there's, no such thing as better now. So I said, think of me as 17 days, because that's probably about where I am emotionally speaking, since I've never done anything to address it. Right. Um, and once that course was completed, I knew I had to help. I just knew I had to help. So when you come in contact with people who have had similar experiences, is there a central message that you try to get across? That, that they're not alone. We're not alone. 
I felt so alone as a child trying to navigate these um, very thick waters. And uh, there were so many people who knew the way to me, but I wasn't able to get to them. And so knowing that um, their stories might be different than mine as far as details, but the um, we're not alone. Right. We're, we have so much more alike than we have unalike, as Maya Angelou says. So um, you've been kind of working at this for a while now. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any yes, certain, certain experience that you felt the most gratification from communicating with someone with this background and, and why? There's, there's been a, a few, I'll tell you the, the very, the very first one that really changed everything for me. It was after I gave my very first talk out loud in public, you know, standing at a podium telling my story. And it was at a, a local small church, the community, um, it was called Community Forum at the Unitarian Universalist Church. They had done some uh, a newspaper article on me as publicity to help bring people into the forum, which turned out to be packed. Oh, wow. And the very next day was the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's um, National Suicide Survivor Day. I had no idea that we had a day dedicated to ourselves. And I was very excited to go to this. And I went the next morning. And during the morning break, a gentleman came up to me who had lost his dad to um, suicide. He said, I was reading in the local paper. You were going to talk at the forum. I went. You mentioned this. And I went. I haven't done anything about this in 20 years. And you have changed my life. I went into the restroom after thanking him and just cried my eyes out. I did not want to change one person's life, Tim. I wanted to change everybody's life. I'm out there for the whole world. Don't tell me it's good if you could just change one person. I always found that to be BS. (laughs) But then when this gentleman came up and thanked me, I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to just help one person and what that ripple effect is like and um it changed everything it's like okay i want to help one person and i want to help one person the next day and the next day and the next day and um it it was an extraordinary moment and i'll never forget it yeah i i have to agree with you being of service I sponsor, I sponsor men in, in 12-step meetings, and mm-hmm. um, it's just great when we talk about stuff and then they go put it into action. Yes. And, you know, and they're, they're very excited about it. 
Yeah. Very excited about it. Well, because, yes. it, because there's something to do and they've been walking around kind of bumping into to their own walls or walls in the mind and the walls in their room. And where do I go? What do I do with this? And to be given some sort of guidance, some place to strive for, it makes all the difference. Yeah. Makes was, all the difference. was there anything uh, that you like to do over in your experience with these people that you talk to? Um, do over. You know, I'm uh, quick to say that no, I, I, I don't have any regrets. And yet I and yet I do. Early in the days where I would speak, I talked in pretty certain absolutes. And as my own recovery came to the surface, so to speak, I realized I don't I don't have that belief system anymore. It's it's now evolved to something different. Damn it, if I wish I could only go to the, the talk a month ago and share that with them. So I want to be very conscious in talking about where I am at today and where I hope to be tomorrow, um, but, it's, but it, that it's always changing. Uh, and I think that's all right. Sure. I think that's going to, it has to be all right. Well, th this is stressful, very difficult, very heavy, what you do. Mm -hmm. You get down on yourself and feel that the work <laughs> at this level is just too challenging and you felt overwhelmed? Yeah, you can ask my husband that question. <laughs> you. And my boys. Yes, the answer is yes. I guess in the beginning, not so much. Um, but as I, the more, the more I would talk and the more I would hear from other people, the more I learned like, yes, this is very, very, this is very, very difficult. And how I would handle it, I'd, I try to be as authentic as I can, as I'm learning how to be as vulnerable and authentic as I can. And if that means I cry when I'm, get, when I'm home, I cry when I'm home. If I cry when I'm with that person who particularly touched me or moved me a certain way, I cry with that person. And it gives them permission to cry too. And because it's, uh, that never goes, that never goes away. But it doesn't mean I'm not laughing and enjoying his memory. Um, but the but the crying never goes away, and that's and that is okay too. And then they realize like, oh, okay, I could. It's been forty years, Tim, since I lost my dad, and uh, I I can still still cry about him. Well, I I think. I think tears are part of the healing process. They certainly are. They're part of the healing process. They're part of life's process. Right. 
it's um i have learned it it it's in my experience i see how tears can connect us in a in a very very powerful way and, and as the mother of two sons i remember when columbine happened and my boys were young and i i have to know what 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 was going on because my boys will be in high school in one day and what can i do to help them feel safe and know that they could always come to their father and to myself uh, like we we had it um i get help i see a therapist for my help I talk to other people, my friends who do the same kind of work I do and, you know, and we'll just like, whoa, that was a heavy one for whatever reason, because they're all heavy. So uh, let me ask you that question. You know, you say you got help. How long did it take you to, to make that step and realize that you needed to reach out and get some help? for what you were doing and, and the, you know, the aftermath of what mm -hmm. you were doing. I'm very lucky to say that I had been going to therapy since my father's suicide. However, the therapist didn't know what to do. Um, they were very undereducated. Yeah. when it came to suicide they were more concerned about their clients themselves taking their lives than you know what it the damage it can do afterwards and so i hunted high and low for someone that i could talk to because i just knew it was important and i wanted to be that example for my young men and this is what we can do when times are getting tough and we don't have all the answers because we don't. Right. Very good. Okay. Let's, let's look at your nuclear family while you were growing up as a child. Where did you grow up, Christine? I grew up in North Hollywood studio city area. It would be called Valley village now. Right. Highfalutin right. Valley village. Cool. It was a great little block. We had a ton of kids on the street and I was always getting in the way wearing my ballet costume because I was a dancer <laughs> and just, uh, we just had a black, it was a wonderful, wonderful neighborhood. Right. I loved it. So let me ask you about your father. Uh, how would you characterize him? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love? discuss emotions or feelings he was tough on us um especially when the mental health was um rearing its you know undirectional head um he we weren't hit or anything like that we were spoken to very crossly you know and you and you never really knew when it was going to happen somebody could spill the milk one day at the dinner table and it's like oh honey honey what you didn't you didn't like that year or the milk you know should, should we get you a new year 
um, and make a big joke out of it. And the next day, uh, you know, it's this huge volcano and it turns into an argument that lasts two weeks long. Mm. Um, and you're just tiptoeing. You're just tiptoeing around him. Um, one of my mom's regrets, and she's given permission for me to talk about this, but she didn't, she says, I didn't poke him enough about getting help for what was going on with him. Because he was just like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And she would stand back rather than no, no, no. We, we need to get further. But Tim, after he passed and I looked in his medicine cabinet, the pills that were in there from our local pharmacy, I don't know what the man was taking. Yeah. Who knows what he was taking? So I'm sure that had to play into a lot of how he behaved and and what he and what he did with it. He was a loving man, though. He funny, kind, and talented. So, has his behavior influenced? your view on what masculinity is today and the stigma around how men and women deal with their depression or suicide? Yes, very much so. Um, he, you know, we would sing something stupid. I don't know if the audience is aware of that song. <laughs> that Frank Sinatra song, we would sing that to each other all the time and had all these like really great loving moments. And then, and I found that to be so masculine. He was my partner, you know, and I got to play with him. And yet he would just turn around and become this stone fist. And it was like, where, where did that come from? So I was very confused about what masculinity meant. Um, <clears throat> my first husband was an alcoholic and I left that pretty quickly. But by the time Chris and I married, he, um, he had a willingness about him to listen and to change ideas standing strong for what he believed in and if that needed adjustments he'd make the adjustments um we've been married 30 some years now so it's taken a long time for us to figure this figure it out but we we did so i find him he's vulnerable spiritual proud um, honest. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, he's a very masculine man and he, and he cries. Mm -hmm. Good. And Good. he cries. Personally, uh, I was diagnosed with severe depressive disorder that's recurring, which my doctor told me was the root of my addictive behavior. Uh, that was eight years ago, and I've since been sober. Uh, thank God. Good for and, you. Yeah. Well, yesterday was my birthday, so I was Oh, very, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. So, 
you know, they, in my book, I talk about depression or other mental health issues mm-hmm. that might be going on with someone. And mm-hmm. if they're not checked and they don't get help, it often turns into risky behavior. Yes. Alcoholism, drug addiction, pill addiction, stealing, fighting others, violence. Did So did you or your parents exhibit any of that risky behavior while you were growing up in that environment? I think, yes, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, One story off the bat, um, we were at the home of my dance instructor's boyfriend having dinner, barbecue off of Mulholland and Coldwater. Well, my father wanted to come home. It was time to come home. When he said it was time to come home, it was time to come home. My mother didn't want to go home. And uh, it was discussed, let's call you a cab and you could take it home if you really need to get home. Now, I'm going to walk. So he walked from Mulholland down Coldwater Canyon. And if anybody's not familiar with this canyon, it is tiny, narrow cliffs, mountains, and it was dark at night. And he didn't have any protective, it it, it was terrible. And then when he finally got down to Ventura Boulevard, he had to continue the walk all the way home. And we were, I was, I remember how terrified I was for him. And not really knowing that that was risky behavior, but he was basically saying, hey, if a car hits me, a car hits me. And that's that's called like suicide ideation. And he just did not care. Um, I had, um, moments of you know drugs and promiscuity and a friend told me if i'm dancing on the edge of dancer there's going to be or danger rather the edge of danger there's going to be dangerous things that take place and uh, she wasn't wrong she wasn't wrong so when when do you think while you were growing up, you were challenged by either depression or some type of mental health issues. And did you do anything about it? Um, well, in, in 1981, a year after my father's passing, my mom was getting remarried mm. and, um, he was kind of her white knight in shining armor and they put me into a psychiatric hospital mm. while they got married. Um, yes, I was just, you know, I had been drinking, I was doing, you know, risky behaviors, but there was no talking. It was simply, if you let her manipulate you now, she's going to manipulate you forever. Um, I was so angry at the experience for so many years until recently where I've been able to forgive it and 
have the contrast and learn from the contrast. Not all places or doctors behave this way. It was a, it was a terrible experience the time I was there. Very um, girl interrupted. If you've seen that film, yeah. the Winona Ryder and Angelina Jolie reminded me of that. And so, uh, but I had it all. I fought alcoholism, the drug addiction, and serious cocaine problem. In, in lieu of anybody doing anything to help me, these were all cries for help. Sure. And I had a high school counselor tell me after a year and a half that I should be over it by now. A year and a half with, with nothing, with nothing, not even, a, not even a pamphlet given on what is suicide, what does suicide mean, and here's help for those left behind. I, I, I was like, oh, okay. It, it, it was astonishing. Yeah. It was astonishing to throw a kid into a sewer without a lifeline. Yep. Okay. Well, now you're married. You have children. Yes. How would you and your husband describe how you are as parents? Uh, easy, tough, lose your cool, yell and scream, show emotions and love? Yes. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. I the yes because I'm I'm human. I'm I'm human and I make mistakes. I I was fearful of Columbine. My my kids were nine and seven ish around the time of Columbine, and how was I going to help them know that what their father and I said to them was safe? What was that going to look like? Every moment my husband always tells me, especially while we were raising our children, was, is a teaching moment. We don't have to wait for the big teaching moment because they're watching us constantly and soaking it up constantly. So we would do our very best to keep that in mind as well as apologize to them when we were being unreasonable you know and not always about you know good job the way you shared your sandwich with your friend but uh, good job the way you were able to take that sandwich and share it with 10 friends you just taught me something and and let them know when i had learned and why I, ha why I had learned from them. They're 30 and 20, almost 28, and I'm still learning from That's them. Cool. And we have a really strong relationship, so I'm hopeful that how we approached it and kind of the legacy stops here, because um, my father's uh, upbringing wasn't easy either. Um, I hope that had a lot to do with their willingness to trust us. 
you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Sure, sure. Let me ask you, uh, the people you come in contact with um, regarding suicide, they probably are good, a good uh, portion of them probably have depression or mental health issues. How do you think? How do you think they've dealt with this depression? Have they gotten help, or are they more sweeping under the rug? What do you think? It's been my experience that most of the time, by the time they reach Dee Dee Hirsch and get involved in a eight-week group that a lot has been swept under the rug because again, just lack of knowing what to do and lack of their friends and family knowing what to say and what to do. So they're, they're in depression. They're, they're in grief. And they want to learn some things. I like to liken it as a, as these big boulders that we have around ourselves or bricks, you know, the cedar bricks on the wall. And like, let's, let's camera in a name to that and then address that issue. And why are we feeling this way? Why do I feel guilty? Why do I think it was all my fault? You know, let's, again, very easy to say, of course, it wasn't your fault. You had nothing to do with this. But the man was my father. I had a relationship with him. Some, something, something I've done must have planted a little seed. I don't think I am responsible, but what can I learn? And, and I take the time to examine that boulder and learn and there were some things towards the end that I, you know, I wish I didn't say to him. Would it have kept him alive for that evening? Maybe, maybe not. Another week or, or a time to just put that, you know, spoke, what is it? Like a stick in the spoke of the wheel to stop the motion from yeah. happening. Who knows? Sure. Who, who knows? Um, but it's okay to feel guilty as long as we examine it and look at it. Because we'll, we'll come to terms with, with that as we examine it, that this isn't our fault. It's like end stage mental health for those who do com complete after a with mental health, because many do not. Many have mental health, mental injuries, and go on and live very normal, active, wonderful, fulfilled lives. Um, NAMI, or are you familiar with NAMI? No. NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Illness, and they're a national organization. They have chapters all over the states, and they do great work. Um, in hopes to keep them from come, needing to come to D.D. Hirsch or to come to me. Um, there's, there's plenty. There's plenty out there. We just have to find them. Yep. So let me ask you, uh, these experiences with these people, um, 
what have you learned from that, those experiences, personally? Hmm. Well, similar to what I had said before, I believe for the, you know, forgive me for, for repeating myself, but uh, we are all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stories are different, but we are really all the same. Men, women, older, younger, we hurt, we question, we're curious, we get stubborn with our feet just stuck into the ground. Um, you might get this as a with your history of sports i had a tennis coach who told me that my feet were in cement shoes <laughs> I, I wasn't picking them up enough and as lightly enough on the court and we we need to to do that as we navigate absolutely nav navigate you know this this journey that goes on forever it's a spiritual yep. journey too. It's an uplifting. Absolutely. So let me touch back on masculinity a little. Uh, have, have your experiences made you view masculinity in a different light? You think it's okay for a man to share his feelings and emotions with another man at the right time, the right place? Absolutely. A hundred percent. But, um, what what do you think that right time and right place would be? Well, the the biggest opportunity for men to talk about their emotions and their feelings is when they're with other men. Mm -hmm. Because they can both relate to that. And the issue is, is that there's a trust issue between men. Yes. Because if, if a man shares his feelings and emotions about what he's going through, he's concerned that the other man might publicize this to his other friends or even hmm. females in his circle, and he might feel more embarrassed. Also, um, you know, there's a, a lot of men are still in the John Wayne toxic uh, ego-driven masculinity. That right? was my dad through and through. He was a Western cowboy actor who that's what tough meant. Right. If I could jump from this horse to this horse to that train and save the robbery, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a masculine man. Right. And that's, men growing up today, that's how their parents were. And that's how the media portrays it. Uh -huh. Thus, they don't, they don't really understand what healthy masculinity is. Yeah. And that's one of the, the major points that I try and hit home in my speaking engagements and podcasts is that it doesn't matter, you know, you don't, in fact, it takes more courage to share your feelings and emotions with another man or ask for help than not. Absolutely. And 
to, to anybody, to anybody, but you're right, especially men. Yeah, it's very, it's very important. And I've been very important. I was educated on this probably 35 years ago on masculinity and, and what it is and how important it is to be united with other men so that we can help each other. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's it, it's it's just something that still is an issue it happens in the workplace where the good old boy system is in rare form and the male vice president selects the male his male buddy as the supervisor of the sales team or whatever team and you know they don't really make space for women and their contribution. I, I, I often tell Doris that, you know, I'd rather have women work. I'd rather work with a woman because they're better workers. They're, they're into the details. Men are, <laughs> men are lazy woman. and messy and, you know, they're, they have masculinity contests in the office. And what that can do, if you don't make space for a woman's contribution, the overall productivity for that team or, or that uh, company will not be met. Right. And, and the women find themselves in one of three positions. Either they, they approach the, the manager and say, hey, you know, I, I've got something to contribute here. And the guy, you know, shoes him away saying, you know, you're, you're, you're just a woman. And so she has a choice whether to go to HR, which is risky business, because you don't know where the company falls, whether they will get rid of you or they will correct the situation. Or they sit back and are very silent because they want to keep their job or they leave and find a, a better environment for them. And this is, this is why I'm taking on masculinity with men so that they understand what to do and what it means to be a healthy masculine man today. Yes. And, it's, and it's very important because women want a healthy man of course, what masculinity is. Of course, we do. I I remember a time. It was a, a Fourth of July. We were over at Lakeside Golf Course enjoying Fourth of July, and I had met a couple, and they ran a restaurant, and they were telling me all about it. I had been to the restaurant, and then they asked me what I did, and so I started to share with them the work that I do, and their girlfriend, who had they had invited her to um, the 4th of July, literally like stop me, like put like Christine, shh, shh, we can't, shh, we can't talk about that. Right. You know, it's like, are, are you shushing me? Yeah. <laughs> shushing me is not a good idea. We, the, the people I was speaking to had no problem with what I was talking about. They were actually quite fascinated with it. And when we're kind of on the front lines of this, which Tim, welcome to the front lines. 
it's it's going to be so important to push that envelope and say, yeah, the time to talk about this is now. Yep. As uncomfortable as it may be, the time to talk about it is now. If you would like to set up a time for tomorrow, meet at coffee in the morning, I'd be happy to do that. The time is now. But one of the many challenges you asked me earlier um, that I face is is getting getting people to come. You know, they they'll see. My son had a friend who died by suicide. He was uh, six weeks away from graduating high school. We went to the service and all the kids were around talking in the backyard and they were talking about him. And I was answering questions for the kids because, you know, I was a teenager too when this happened to me. So I asked the parents if they would be interested and if we got them all together and talked about him. They were going to be going off to colleges and all these things. Oh, please, 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 yes, so much. We rented out this little um, home in the neighborhood around an arena. And the day before, I ran into one of the mothers at the supermarket and she said, oh, you know, my daughter seems to be doing okay now and my, and her brother as well, and they're getting ready for finals. So I don't think, we're, and sure enough, not a single person showed up no. because they didn't, they were so afraid that it was going to take them out of the need for, to study for their test or make them sad or I'm just mourning for a couple, and, and it, as though that is wrong. Right. And uh, there are no, there's nothing that can be further from the truth. It's necessary. Absolutely. It's, it's love. It's the next extension of love. We all have to grow. I mean, we all have to grow. And um, I wish it would just happen a little faster. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I wish it would happen a little faster. I want to ask you one last question. Okay. Uh, how would you describe masculinity? I would describe masculinity um, with vulnerability, humor. Humor is a must. Uh, a willingness to see it as a, a family experience, not like, okay, this is just Johnny's experience, not mine. It's like, no, this is a family experience and let's talk about it as a family and we're going to be willing to dig deep and it's going to take some time. Um, the willingness to allow that for that time to do you know I, I heard people say you know time heals everything uh, that's another bs as far as i'm concerned time heals nothing time is a measurement from one moment to the next but it's what you do with the time that changes everything and you can do a lot from one moment to the next uh my husband and i have these little plastic shovels that we painted 
And if we're having a particularly difficult conversation, he'll approach me with the shovel and he says, I'm asking you with love to dig a little deeper. Mm. And I have to receive it that way. And then I do the same thing back to him, whether it's the next day or a year from now, I'm handing this shovel to you. Please dig deeper. And sure enough, we come back together and our thoughts have gone a bit deeper. That's just a, a great ritual. I love it. Yeah, any kind of rituals are so important. Yeah. And uh, and not to take things personally. Know that he 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 loves me, and he's giving me these tools because he loves me. Right. And the same the same goes the same for me to him. See that to me is the you know a good definition of masculinity because he is giving you the space to be who you are. Yes. And he's allowing you to find your way yes and you know he's doing it in a cordial manner yes and you know that's i mean what what better what better of love you know oh love is so important if we can take away the fear that we come to in the mornings and inject more love into our mornings that that would change that would change our days and change everything everything the ripple effect would be so so powerful very true well listeners as you can see christine's story is quite remarkable she's a very brave woman of courage and giving to her community a true role model for our world today We're honored to have you on our podcast today. Do you have any final thoughts? I I really want to thank you, Tim, for what you're doing and for being this new voice to have these conversations and, and invite us into these conversations. They need to happen. We need more of them. Um, We are, trying at the very best we can um and and to make it hip you know how do we make suicide and the talk and the work around it hip enough that it's like we're going we're going to make a change and it's not just this morose it's a human condition and uh nobody is making fun Nobody is making fun of the people who suffer, um, but it is a human condition, and we can find uh, the love and the and the humor there. So, yeah, I, I really thank you, Tim. You're thank- doing beautiful work, and if ever I could continue to be support for you, I'm right here. Back, right back at you. Uh, thank look- you. I look forward to continuing our dialogue and because I want to learn more from you so I can help others. Yes. Terrific. Me too. So thanks again, Christine. Thank you, Tim. 
Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts. And keep your eyes out for my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Please contact me for speaking engagements and personal relationship coaching or executive coaching through my website, timcrass.com. Don't forget to have fun, everybody. Have a good day.